at the cross for you. Thank you, ladies. Take your copy of God's Word, please, and turn to the book of Hebrews. If you have trouble finding it, just go to Philemon and turn right. It's right there. And if you go too far, you'll come to James. So uh, Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. When you find it, would you join me in standing, please, as we show our respect for the reading of the Word of the Living God. And this is the Word of the Living God. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has appointed to us, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy." May God add his blessings to the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. You know, as we think about the signs of the times, one of the things that has changed since I was a young man or since I was even an older child where I can remember things back in the 50s and 60s, I remember going to church and I remember hearing my preacher back in the 50s and early 60s talking about the greatest menace to Christianity was communism. And then after I was called to the ministry and I would go to the Southern Baptist Convention, I'd hear men like W.A. Criswell or Herschel Hobbs, uh, great preachers, R.G. Lee, preachers of the past, who are all with the Lord now. And they would remind us that the, this world was either going to turn to Christ or to communism. Uh, Billy Graham, and I'm sure we'll see some of these things. We visited his library this week, uh, spoke openly against communism. And uh, later on, the door opened, and he went to Russia and preached in Russia as communism fell. In those days, the enemy of the church was thought to be communism. We were worried about that. Nowadays, uh, there are two main enemies the church has. The worst enemy I think we have in this country is humanism. Uh, there's a lot of rampant humanism in this country. And humanism sounds like a noble thing while we're just being humane if we're humanists. Well, what humanists do are they deify mankind and they don't want an absolute deity. Well, there's only one problem with that. God is in control and not the humanist. He is absolute, and it doesn't matter if you like that or not. He's absolute. He was absolute 10 billion years ago. He'll be absolute 10 trillion years from now. He's always absolute, and he has the last word. But in these days, and I think especially probably in the last 20 years since the fall of communism, 
The thing that we need to be concerned about is the rise of Islamic Jihad. Because now the Muslims have a plan to take over the world. They will do it by one of, of two ways. First of all, they may do it just by simply being assimilated into society. If you go to Great Britain, you'll see that. You go to Great Britain, you'll see a lot of churches closed down. And a lot of those churches now have been reopened as either mosques or prayer centers for Islam. Now, that is true in much of Europe. They tried to conquer Europe in the Middle Ages by force, and they were turned back. They were repelled. But now they're trying to conquer Europe by infiltration, and it is working. It's working in our country in some areas. Michigan is targeted by Muslims to become the first Muslim-dominated state. They're trying to get as many Muslims to settle in Michigan as they can. There's a lot of opportunities there. The auto industry has been on the downswing. They're going in, they're supporting one another, and they're trying to establish a political base. But where they don't do that, they try to enforce their religion on people by radical Islamic jihad. Now, I'm not going to tell you a lot about Muslims today because I'm not here to glorify Islam. I'm here to tell you the truth about Islam, but I'm here today to glorify Jesus Christ because he is far superior to Islam. Uh, in fact, here, when we say, and, and if you were to ask me, preacher, how can you be saved? I would tell you very simply, as Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And if you do that, you will be saved. Now, I'm not saying say a prayer. I'm not saying sign a card. I'm not saying be dunked in the baptistry. I'm talking about committing your life totally to Jesus Christ. You will be saved. That was true a thousand years ago. It's true today. It'll be true 10,000 years from now. There's only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. Not the Baptist church, not the Methodist church, not the Catholic church, not the Mormon church, but the church of Jesus Christ, the great invisible church of which all true Christians are members. That is what we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Here is what a Muslim says. A Muslim says there is no God but Allah, and his prophet is Mohammed. Now that is their mantra. That is their confession of faith. I did a little study. David Jeremiah has a wonderful chapter on Islam in his book, What in the World is Going On? You need to understand a little bit about Mohammed. Mohammed was a man who was married to a very wealthy woman. And obviously this very wealthy woman was very intelligent and she had a lot of power. And she was a businesswoman and she had Mohammed not just as a husband but also as one of her employees. And she sent him on a business trip one day and he obviously wasn't too happy about the arrangement. And so he went into a cave and he lay down in the cave and later on, he told someone in that cave he had a nightmare. And when, they told him, when he told them about their nightmare, he said, well, you ought to write that down. And so he wrote it down. That is the Koran. What you have today in the Koran is the nightmare Mohammed had in a cave. Now, Mohammed then became a prophet. And as he began to espouse his new religion, he had to pick a god because, you see, Mohammed was not Arabic, he was Persian. He was from Persia. And in Persia, they worshipped a lot of different gods. Their main god was the sun god. He was the male deity. 
And next to the sun god was the moon god, a female deity. And Mohammed's family worshipped the moon god, the female deity. So Mohammed did not choose the sun god, the male deity. He chose Allah, the moon god. That is why when people say to you, well, it really doesn't matter what you call him. You can call him God, or you can call him Jehovah, or you can call him Allah. It's all the same. No, it's not. There's no god but Jehovah. He is the only true and living God. All other gods are false gods. And Allah was simply the moon god in Persian mythology. And so he was chosen, she was chosen by Mohammed. As Mohammed began to promote his new religion, it was only natural that he would choose to elevate his family's favorite god, the moon god, Allah, and declare him to be the one true god. And so he took a Persian deity, and made that Persian deity on the same level as our God. And as he began to write his books, he began to be persecuted. And if you look at the history of Islam, it's always been a violent religion. There have always been factions that hated each other within Islam. And it's that way today. They not only want to kill all Christians, they, some of them want to kill the other uh, Muslims that they come across. It is a terribly violent religion. Uh, when you read the Koran, and I, I would encourage you, if you ever see a copy, to try to read it. Uh, it does not read like the Bible. It's obvious it tries to be like the Bible, uh, but the, it's, like, it's like the Apocrypha that's found in some versions of the Bible. It's not canonical. It doesn't read like the Bible. I want to tell you, when you pick this book up, you can start at Genesis and go all the way to Revelation. This is one book. There's no contradictions in here. There's no mistakes in here. This is the Word of God. And I believe that the Word of God was written by men upon whom God had filled with His Spirit. God had rested His Spirit on them. Men and women wrote His Word. The Koran is the nightmare Mohammed had in a cave. Well, the writer of Hebrews talks about comparing Jesus Christ. And when he talks about comparing Jesus Christ... Mohammed had not even been born, wouldn't be born for about 700 years. But the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus Christ to everything that has gone before in Israel. And if you read the book of Hebrews, and by the way, uh, I know it says on the top of the page there on the superscription, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Well, that was not written by the writer. That was added by an editor. Uh, and, and really, if you, if you look at it, uh, in fact, in, in my Bible, I have an NIV, it just says Hebrews. If you have a King James, it says the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Hebrews. First of all, I don't think it's an epistle. It doesn't read like an epistle. And secondly, I don't think Paul wrote it. Uh, now, I may be wrong. Brother Paul Moore believes that Paul wrote it, and Paul and I love one another. We're not going to argue about that. Uh, in fact, when we get to heaven, one of us is going to be right. And, you know, if it's Brother Paul, he can tell me for all eternity. I told you it was written by Paul the Apostle. And I will say, Brother Paul, you were absolutely right, and I was wrong. Of course, if I'm right, then for all eternity, I'm, Brother Paul, you remember you thought it was written by Paul, and I told you it wasn't. You should have listened to me, Brother Paul. And we, we'll say that good night. But really, one reason I don't think it was written by Paul is it's written in the finest Greek in the New Testament. In fact, uh, this is almost classical Greek. It's so fine. The rest of the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. And this was written by someone who was apparently a scholar of the first order. 
But also there's a passage here where Paul, or whoever wrote this, said we were saved because somebody told us about Jesus. I don't think Paul would have ever said that. I think Paul would say, I saw Jesus on the Damascus Road. That's found in chapter 2. It was confirmed unto us by those who heard him. And I don't believe Paul, the apostle, would ever say that. But I may be wrong. It may have been written by Paul. It may be an epistle. It reads more like a sermon than an epistle. But here, I think we can agree on this. It was written to Hebrews. That's what it says. Now, if you read the book carefully, I think there are two groups of Hebrews described in here. I think there's one group of Hebrew people who had heard of Jesus and they were interested in Jesus. They, they were kind of inquiring about whether or not to become believers in Jesus. And they came almost to the brink of becoming a Christian. And then they turned and went back to Judaism. I think that's one group. And, and if you read in this book, you'll read several times. This is what happened to them. This is what happened to them. But I'm, I'm sure better things are in store for you. The other group of people were Jews who had become fully sold out, committed Christians. And the, the writer of Hebrews wrote this sermon or epistle, whatever it is, to them. And in this epistle, or in this book, he tells them how Christ is superior to the things that went before. Notice how he begins with the prophets. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. He tells us when this happened in the past. That meant all the way back to the creation. And everyone who spoke for God in the Old Testament was considered a prophet. Noah was considered a prophet. He preached righteousness to his generation. Moses was considered a prophet. Uh, Abraham was considered a prophet to the Jews. Uh, a lot of people were considered prophets who didn't bear the name prophet. But he spoke in the Old Testament through the prophets in the past. And it was written to their forefathers. These are people who were Hebrews. Now let me say this. God loves everybody. In the Old Testament, the Jews were the chosen people. Now that means God chose them and they were chosen for a particular reason. God chose them, first of all, to bring the Messiah into the world. Secondly, God chose them to bring his word into the world. That's why they were chosen. Now the book of Romans makes it very apparent that after the coming of Jesus Christ, Jewish people are no longer the apple of God's eye. Now, he still loves the Jews and has a relationship with them, but his children are ones who embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I love Jewish people. I wish they'd be saved, and they can be saved. And the Bible says during the Great Tribulation, 144,000 Jewish evangelists like the Apostle Paul are going to go out through the world and are going to convert people. More people will be converted during the Tribulation probably than have been converted in the entire church age. God is not through with the Jews, but the Jews are no longer His chosen people. The church now are the chosen of God. And we need to celebrate that. We need to love our Jewish friends and pray for them. But these things were written in the Old Testament to Jewish people, to our forefathers. And then notice the messengers through the prophets. The word prophet does not mean to proclaim something that's going to happen in the future. The word prophet means one who speaks for God. Sometimes pastors need to speak prophetically. Sometimes pastors uh, need to say, thus saith the Lord. In fact, I wish more preachers were saying, thus saith the Lord. I, I get kind of sick and tired uh, of all these preachers going on the internet and getting sermons. I mean, it's really bad. 
you can go on the internet and for $6, you can download a sermon and you can get nice slides to go on your PowerPoint and your people sit out there Sunday after Sunday and they say, oh my, isn't our pastor wonderful? Oh, look how he did the slides. Look how he made that point. Look how all this ties together. And he paid $6 for it on the internet. That's not preaching. That's plagiarism. I'll tell you what preaching is. Preaching is shutting the door in your study and getting on your face before God and saying, God, I know there's something in your word for your people and you're putting me in the pulpit to deliver that word. And God, with everything that's in me, I don't want to stand up there on Sunday and take up time and space. I want to tell people, thus saith the Lord. That's what preaching is. You don't hear much of it anymore. I, I tell you... It, no wonder everything is on, is on the decline. You know, that, that's the only way I know to preach. Get along with God and say, God, I don't want to, I don't want to tell them what I think. I'm, I'm not up here to, to promote anything. I don't have an agenda. I have God's agenda at heart. The messenger through the prophets. And then notice the median. I love this. This is my favorite phrase in this passage. At many times and in various ways. When you read this in Greek, this is beautiful. The writer of Hebrews makes a play on words in the finest Greek written in the New Testament. He says, God spoke, pomumeros, polyutropos. Pomumeros, polyutropos. You can hear how those words begin with that prefix, po. And it literally means many portions, many ways. That is a beautiful picture. And God still speaks in many ways. But primarily, he has spoken through his word, the Bible, through his son. But I want to tell you this, he's not through speaking through the spirit to you and to me. The most important thing I tell children when they get saved is not to walk down the aisle and get baptized. In fact, I don't tell children to walk down the aisle and get baptized anymore. I tell them, you learn to listen to God. And when God tells you to come down the aisle and get baptized, you come then. You see... If I don't tell them how to communicate with God, it doesn't matter if they're baptized. They can be dunked and be lost. I was. I was dunked and was just as lost as I could be. If my preacher said, now, son, don't you come down this aisle until you know absolutely positively that you've been born again and that God wants you to be baptized. You see, that's a sign that God is speaking to our children. And let me tell you this. God wants to speak to you. He'll speak to you through his word. He has spoken through his son. And he will speak through his spirit if you'll let him. In many portions, many ways. Within the source, notice that God spoke. God spoke. It matters what God speaks. Now, I'm going to say something, and I really hadn't, didn't have this in my notes. I may get in trouble, but I'm just going to tell you. God tells us what to do with murderers. Now, some of you are going to say, Brother Mike, don't you go there. I'm going to go there, okay? Because God said to do it. It says in the book of Genesis, after the flood, before Abraham, it says, he who sheds man's blood, his blood shall be shed by man. That's why God instituted authorities. That's why God instituted law enforcement officers and, and governors and presidents and judges to see that justice was done. You know what we do in America? We like to take what God says that we like and apply that. And what we don't like, we say, oh, I don't want that. You see, a lot of people say, well, let's just kill 
little babies in their mother. Why did that thing happen? I'll tell you what happened. Because we in America, the vast majority of America, thinks that abortion on demand is perfectly all right. They don't believe that inside that mother's womb is a soul. And from my Bible, I'm not making this up, from my Bible I read that when life begins at conception, that child, and by the way, scientifically, do you know that child is formed? Every, every DNA that that child is ever going to have in its entire life, if it, that child lives to be 100, DNA is going to be the same as it was when it was conceived. And yet we say, well, if, if, you, know, if you want to abort a baby, well, you can even do a partial birth abortion and destroy a baby. That's the way we treat babies in their mothers. When Mother Teresa shook her bony finger in President Clinton's face and said the reason there's so much violence in America is because you kill little babies in their mother's wombs. And the place got quiet. I'm thankful a little nun came from Calcutta, shook her little bony finger in the face of our president, said it's wrong. I wish a Baptist preacher stood up there and shook his finger in President Clinton's face and said it's wrong. And by the way, you remember when that guy shot all those people at the Army base out in Texas? Who was a Muslim, by the way? A Muslim psychiatrist. I told my family, what's happened to us? In the military, when people used to do things like that, you know what happened? They'd have a trial and they'd court-martial them. And at dawn, the day after they were found guilty, they'd be lined up against a wall and shot as a traitor. You know what we do to murderers now? We give them 48 trials. They have 1,500 appeals. And they're sentenced to life without parole. And then they go to a prison where, where they want to have air conditioning and food three times a day and free medical care. What justice is that? I know he's going to get justice with God when God, he stands before God. But the Bible already says, He who sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That's not politically correct. You know, it doesn't matter to me if it's politically correct. God said it. Amen. God said it. If we'll get back to the Bible, we can handle a lot of this stuff that's going on. But the source, God spoke. Then he talks not about the, the prophets, but he talks about the presence. No, he says, the present, he says, but in these days. What's he talking about? He's talking about these last days, the era, the first century, the birth of Christ, the Messiah, his earthly ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming down and indwelling the lives of believers, the missionary church planting movement, the writing of the New Testament. And once this was done, that was the end of that era. And the book of Hebrews was written toward the end of that era. You say, how do you know that? Go over and read chapter 11 and read about all these heroes of the faith who'd already lived. That was toward the end of that era. And so the source, again, he has spoken. God, the ultimate authority, but now he's spoken to us by his son. Now, if you, if you look in the King James, you'll notice that the word his is in italics. It's not in italics in the NIV because they do this a lot in the NIV, but it's supplied there. It's not in the original Greek text, but if you study Greek, you understand that it's implied by the Greek text. I know somebody would say, well, the word his is not there, but it's implied there. But he's spoken to us by his son. Notice what John MacArthur said. He said, when you come to Christ, you're not just talking about another prophet. 
another person, another holy man. You're talking about God in human flesh in whom God has fully revealed himself. Everything God wants us to know about himself is manifest in Jesus Christ. He is God's living and final revelation. When people came to Jesus and they said, show us the Father and it will suffice us, he said, look at me, here I am. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I believe that. I believe Jesus Christ is God incarnate who walked on this earth, who lived a life of 33 years, who lived a sinless life of 33 years, who died on the cross for my sins and for your sins and for the sins of the whole world if they'll turn from their sin and trust him, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb, that he rose again the third day, that he was seen by others for 40 days, then he ascended up to heaven, and the Bible says he sat down by the majesty on high. That's the Jesus I'm talking about. And there's no one like him. Don't compare him to Mohammed. Mohammed was a prophet, or he said he was a prophet. Jesus was God's son, and he said he was God's son, and he showed he was God's son. And bless God, he's still God's son. Amen. He is God's son forever. Praise his holy name. But then he talks not only about the prophets and the present, he talks about the preeminence. He says the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Notice, he is preeminent as heir, whom he appointed heir of all things. He's going to inherit it all. It was his father's, now it's his. He is preeminent as creator, through whom he made the universe. When you see the ocean, as we watched the Gulf of Mexico this week, my thought was not, oh, that's a beautiful ocean. My thought was there is a loving God who spoke that into crea creation. And he spoke it by his son, Jesus Christ. He is preeminent as the radiance of God's glory. Oh, I'm hungry for God's glory. I love it when God's glory falls. You say, why don't you make it happen? I can't. I really can't. I pray for it to happen. I say, God, if I get in the way, move me out of the way, let your glory fall. I've done that before right here in this place. I love it when God's glory. You know why I don't, I don't think we see much of God's glory? We don't ask for much of God's glory anymore. When was the last time you asked God to do something great? When was the last time you said, God, do something's not in the bulletin today? I did this morning. I said, God, you're in control. If you don't want us to do what's in the bulletin, change it. Paul, I know, is ready to change it. God tells her to change it. Listen, are you, are you hungry for God's glory? I get so sick of the deification of man and, and the humanization of God. I want to tell you, God is not the man upstairs. God is not your buddy. God is a sovereign, omnipotent God, and if he didn't give us life and breath, we'd all be dead right now. We need to look at him. I want to see his glory. And when you see Jesus, you see his glory. He is preeminent as the exact representation of his being. You see me, you see the Father. He is preeminent as the sustainer, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Not just some things, but all things. This world exists because of the word of Jesus Christ. He is preeminent as the sacrifice for sins after he had provided purification for sins. He is preeminent as the great high priest. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Let me tell you why this meant a lot to Hebrews. Because the Hebrews knew that on the day of atonement, the old high priest would go inside. He was in the holy place. And on the day of atonement, he would go in with the blood of the lamb. And there was a veil that was here. And the veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And 
Once a year on the Day of Atonement, that high priest would step behind that veil. And on his robe were pomegranates and bells. And as he stepped back there, he moved and they could hear those bells ringing. You talk about joy bells. Let me remind you what he was doing. He was sprinkling the blood of the lamb on the Ark of the Covenant. And it was forgiving the sins symbolically of the people. And he would walk around that mercy seat and he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb all around that mercy seat. And as he walked around, those bells would be jingling and they could hear him. He didn't say anything. He was doing a holy duty to God. And when he finished and he stepped outside and he came out and that blood was on him and it was on his garments, it was on his hands. And he would hold up to show them the blood had been applied and the people would get excited and they'd start praising the Lord. And then, and only then when the high priest got through, did he sit down because his work was finished. When Jesus got back to heaven, the Bible says he sat down by the Father because his work on earth was through. He sent the Holy Spirit to work through us, but he's seated today at the right hand of the Father. Oh, I want to tell you, he's superior to anything this world has to offer. He is the great high priest, and he is preeminent over heavenly creatures. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. All during the revelation, old John, in the spirit on the Lord's day on Patmos, saw heaven opened and heard a voice say, come up here, I like that. Man, that's my, one of my, I like, I, you know, everything, everything in the Bible is my favorite part. Have you ever noticed that? That's my second favorite part. I just love the Bible. I just love, but man, I love it when old John's in the spirit on the Lord's day worshiping the Lord. And God says, come up here. I believe that's what he's going to say at the rapture. Come up here. And all those folks that are six feet under are going to have a head start on us. And when they come up, we're going to be wanting to join them. But old John got up there and he walked around. Man, he'd see things in heaven no other human eye has ever seen before. He'd say, I can't really describe it like I want to. It's like this. But then he'd see something. He'd fall down, you know. And that ain't, get up, man. Get, don't worship me. Worship God. Now that shows you the glory of God in heaven is so awesome and so amazing. It also shows that he is preeminent over any heavenly creature. What's the summation today? Well, Allah was a false moon god.